Okay, I think we should get started. I would like to welcome you to the 33rd Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture. Bernard Moses, an historian and political scientist, was born in Connecticut in 1846. He studied at the University of Michigan and at Heidelberg and came to Berkeley in 1876 at the age of 30, where he was a prominent member of our faculty for the rest of his life, including two decades when he remained professionally active as an emeritus professor. His academic specialty was the history of Spanish America with a focus on the colonial period. According to the Dictionary of American Biography, uh, at the turn of the century, he was possibly the only professor in the United States uh, devoting his full scholarly attention to the study of Spanish America. He wrote numerous books in his field, the last two of which were published well after his retirement uh, while he was in his 80s. He played a leading role in establishing Latin American studies as an important academic focus on our campus, and he is one of three major figures from the earlier generations of Berkeley scholars who worked on Latin America, after whom campus buildings are named, thus Moses Hall, as well as Stevens Hall and Krober Hall. Since 1937, the Bernard, Bernard Moses Memorial Lectures have honored this distinguished member of our faculty. Over the years, approximately half the lectures have been concerned with Latin America, as befits Bernard Moses's scholarly interests and contribution. At the same time, many other lectures have present, been presented by prominent members of our faculty whose interests span a wide variety of fields. Professor George Lakoff of the Berkeley Linguistics Department our speaker today, fits within the second tradition of the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectures. He studied at MIT and Indiana University, and after teaching at Harvard and Michigan, joined the Berkeley faculty in 1972. In the 1960s and early 1970s, he was at the forefront of the school of linguistic analysis known as generative semantics, which explored the relation between the meaning and the structure of language. That concern evolved into the field of cognitive linguistics in which he has been a leading figure over the past two decades. His books on metaphor and conceptual structure are today basic reading in many disciplines. Our speaker is past president of the International Cognitive Linguistics Society. His strong interest in the implications of cognitive linguistics for theory building in the sciences and social sciences is reflected in his recent appointment to the science board of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a major center for the study of the theory of complex systems. He's an outstanding teacher in our campus, well known at the undergraduate and graduate level, both within his own department and across many other disciplines for his skill in synthesizing broad areas of knowledge and in challenging students to think in new ways. The focus of today's lecture is the analysis of metaphor with the goal of understanding how we think about causation. Scholars across a broad range of disciplines occasionally find themselves pondering the numerous meanings we associate with the concept of causation, yet many of us lack an organized framework for assessing these meanings. Members of the lecture committee therefore thought that the assessment of metaphors that shape our conception of causation would be a topic of wide interest to colleagues and students at Berkeley. 
We are therefore pleased to have George Lakoff here to speak about metaphors of causation. Let me add that following the talk, there will be time for questions. And following the questions, there will be refreshments and a reception in this room to which all are invited. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. <laughs> Let me see if I can get this working. Can you all hear me? Uh, let's see, if, is there anybody adjusting this? Um, can you hear me now? Um, well, I'm going to have to use this. This is the lovelier mic since I'm going to have to be up there. There should be somebody adjusting this. Um, anybody around? Um, 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 um. Let's see. Okay. Nope, that's not working either. Hello? That one's better. Ah, all right. Well, first, uh, I'd like to thank David Collier for his introduction, and I'd like to thank the uh, Moses Lecture Committee for the opportunity to give this talk. Um, and it's a pleasure to do this. Uh, I, I've been on sabbatical this year, and uh, I've missed teaching terribly. <laughs> so. Um, a lot of the work that I and my colleagues have done over the past 15 years has been concerned with uh, what we call the metaphorical conceptual system. That is, uh, what we have found is that many of our abstract concepts are not just literal, not just reflections of something out there in the world, but are metaphorical in the sense that they reflect uh, other domains which we use to conceptualize abstract concepts, such as causation. And what I'd like to do is talk today about the question of causation and raise the question of whether there is a metaphor system for, for causation. We have found such systems for uh, such things as time, the mind, the self, morality, and so on. And uh, what I'd like to suggest is that there is such a system for causation. Now. Um, to get into this and to see why this is of interest in the social sciences, since this is a lecture for the social sciences, uh, what I'd like to do is talk about some metaphorical causal models uh, used commonly in the social sciences, just to give you an idea of what metaphorical causal models are. For example, um, Paul David in economic history, Sid Verba in comparative politics, and Steve Krasner in international relations all use the notion of causal paths and trees. Um, you see this in notions like paths to democracy. Uh, the domino effect, uh, you'll remember, those of you who are old enough from the Vietnam War era, that that was a major theory of international relations at the time. Uh, there's a notion of a threshold where there is a buildup with no effect for a while, but once a change starts, it becomes uncontrollable. There, is, um, there was more recently the plate tectonic theory of international relations. Uh, this is when there is a causal force, like uh, US pressure on the Soviet Union, applied to something large. The effect can lag after the action of the cause. The question was, why should it have taken so long for the Soviet Union to collapse? And the plate tectonic theory was offered uh, as an explanation. Now, uh, these are metaphorical causal models. And if you look at them, each of them has its own logic. They don't all work in the same way. And so the question is, what is it that makes them all causal? 
Why are they all called the same thing? Why are they all about causation if they all have different logics? Secondly, you'll notice that they're taken from other domains than strictly domains about causation. So the question I would like to raise is, is there a theory of metaphorical causal models? Can we say something about what all such models are going to look like? And moreover, does this theory have to do with our ordinary language and our ordinary mode of causal thought? Okay. Um, now, uh, I'm a linguist, and as such, uh, I study things very differently than other people in the social sciences. Uh, if I'm going to ask such a question, here's how I go about asking it. I'll look at the conventional linguistic system and the conventional conceptual system for causation. I'll look at the range of individual words, idioms, and grammatical constructions used to express causation. I'll look at their corresponding inference patterns. And I'll ask, what general principles make sense of these data? And I'll see, uh, check to see if there's a metaphor system involved. Okay, to give you some idea of what a messy and difficult problem this is, uh, let's look at a mess of data. Right, here are some examples of expressions of causation. Uh, the noise gave me a headache. The aspirin took it away. The Democrats blocked the balanced budget amendment in the Senate. FDR's leadership brought the country out of the depression. We have verbs here like give, take, block, bring. The home run threw the crowd into a frenzy. He pulled me out of my depression. That experience pushed him over the edge. The trial thrust OJ's attorney into the limelight. They handed me the job. The Democrats are trying to derail the Republicans' legislative agenda. As we go through this, ask why each of these bold-faced verbs is a causal verb and what they have to do with one another. The alchemist wanted to turn lead into gold. His political views were shaped by the Depression. The earthquake held up the project. A rise in pressure accompanies a rise in temperature. Why does a company have to be causal? Smoking leads to cancer. Cancer has been linked to smoking. Russia replaced one government with another. He carried the project to completion by himself. They closed the door on a settlement. He died from pneumonia. Pressure goes up with temperature. That's a mess of data. Uh, notice we have words like give, take, block, derail, turn, shape, accompany, lead, be linked to, replace, etc. Why do these words, which differ so greatly from one another in their most basic senses, why do they express causation? And they don't all mean the same thing. What forms of causation do they express? Okay, so this is how a linguist starting to look at this begins to make sense of data. And what I've generally found by, uh, and together with colleagues and students, and I should mention others, uh, Len Talmy, who is now head of cognitive science at State University of New York at Buffalo. Uh, Jane Espenson, who is now a successful script writer in Hollywood. Uh, uh, Adele Goldberg, uh, who teaches at UCSD. Uh, Sarah Taub, one of our graduate students, all contributed to the, kind of the work that I'll be describing today. Okay, what we have all found is that causal metaphor is based not just on causation itself, but on the overall structure of events. That is, to understand the range of metaphorical conceptions of causation, 
we have to look at causation not by itself, but in the context of event structure in general. That is, we have to look at metaphorical conceptions of states, changes, actions, purposes, means, difficulties, activities, and so on. Only then does the metaphorical system for causation become clear. Now, to get into this, uh, what I'd like to suggest, and what's the result, the basic result I'll be going through, is that there is an event structure system which interacts with the notion of causation, and that there is a single notion of, of what a cause is behind much but not all of the system. Uh, I'll be going through what I call the basic event structure metaphor system. There are two branches, the location and the object branch. And under the location branch will be three separate cases. The states are locations, case, actions, or self-propelled motions, projects are routes. Don't worry what this is. You'll get lots of it later on. First variation, activities are moving objects. Second variation, actions are locations. Now, on the object branch, properties are possessions. These are all general metaphors that define a whole, a whole system of metaphors for event structure. And as soon as we add to that one metaphor, which is that causes are physical forces. As soon as you add that, you get a system of event structure together with a system of causation. So I'll be bringing that back and uh, just to show you where we are. Okay, let's start with the central system. This is the basic event structure metaphor, uh, the location branch. We'll talk about the branches in a while. And it says this. It says states are understood as locations, bounded regions in space. Changes are movements in or out of bounded regions. Here are the important ones. Causes are forces. Causation is forced movement. That's how causation in its most fundamental sense is going to be is understood. Actions are self-propelled movements, purposes are destinations, means are paths to destinations, projects are routes, difficulties are impediments to motion, and external events are large moving objects. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you until I give you lots of examples, and uh, in the true form of linguistics, you will get lots of examples. So, uh, states are locations. Bounded, that is, by locations, I mean bounded regions in space. Examples are these. I'm in love. He's out of his depression. You have in and out. He's deep in a depression. If you have a bounded region in space, you can be deep inside of it or, or, near, the, or near the edge. He's on the edge of senility. He's close to insanity. You can be close to a boundary of this. We're far from safety. Now, uh, there's... This metaphor, which is uh, a mapping from the, notion, from the domain of location of space to the notion of, a, of state, carries with it uh, inference patterns. These are inference patterns about bounded regions in space that get mapped onto states. So if you're in a bounded region, then you're not out of that bounded region. So if you're in a state, you're not out of the state. If you're out of the bounded region, you're not in it. If you're out of the state, you're not in it. <laughs> if you're deep in a bounded region, you're far from being out of it. So if you're deep in a state, you're far from being out of it. If you're on the edge of a bounded region, you're close to being in it. If you're on the edge of a state, you're close to being in that state, and so on. All right, 
inference patterns of these from what are called source domains, here the domain of location, get carried over to reasoning about states. And this is a very important kind of thing. That is, metaphors are not just ways of talking, they're ways of thinking and reasoning. They take inference patterns from a more concrete or spatial domain and they apply them to more abstract domains. And here are some examples of such patterns. Let's take some others. These are very simple-minded examples. You all recognize them instantly. Changes are movements into and out of locations. So, I came out of my depression. He went crazy. He went over the edge. She entered a state of euphoria. He fell into a depression. We have lots of movements. Enter, state, enter, fall, go. He went deeper into his depression. In the so sun, the clothes went from wet to dry in an hour. The clothes are somewhere between wet and dry. Now, there are inference patterns mapped for changes. Here, changes are understood as movements into and out of location, inference patterns. If something moves from location A to location B, it's first in A, later in B. If something changes from state A to state B, it's first in A, later in B. Uh, if something moves from A to B over a period of time, there is a point at which it is between A and B. Similarly, if something changes from state A to state B over a period of time, there's a point at which it is between A and B, and so on. Lots of inferences about changes that are abstract versions of inferences about location. Now, causation, if you understand causation as a force and add it to these, to change as, mo as movement, what you see is that causation is forced movement, and it's forced movement of the thing that changes to a location, that is a new state, from an old state to a new state. And here are lots of sentences that exemplify that. What we have is uh, verbs of forced movement, like bring, throw, drive, pull, push, move, propel, thrust. These are all verbs of forced movement. And uh, you put them in abstract cases, and what you get ca is causation understood as forced movement. So. FDR's leadership brought the country out of a depression. The home run threw the crowd into a frenzy. He drove her crazy. He pulled me out of my depression. That experience pushed him over the edge. His speech moved the crowd to rage. The stock market crash propelled the country into a depression. The thr trial thrust OJ's attorneys into the limelight. Okay? So what you have here uh, as I've said, is the notion of causes or forces added to changes or movements, states or locations, and you get causation as forced movement of the thing that changes into a new state. Now, this is part of a larger system, and the larger system is uh, a very interesting one, and let me take a couple of minutes just to go through it. Actions with respect to this system are understood as self-propelled motions. So aids to action are uh, aids to motion. Manner of action is manner of motion. Careful action is careful motion. Speed of action is speed of motion. And here are a few examples of that. Uh, for aids to action are aids to motion. It's smooth sailing from here on in. It's downhill from here. There's nothing in our way. Careful action is careful motion. I'm walking on eggshells. He's treading on thin ice. He's walking a fine line. Notice these are spatial expressions that can, about motion, that can be used to understand any kind of action, 
Action is understood as self-propelled motion. Speed of action is speed of motion. He flew through his work. She's going by leaps and bounds. I'm moving at a snail's pace. Now, difficulty in action, that is difficulty in achieving a purpose, is seen as something that impedes motion, that gets in its way. So you have blockages. There are five kinds in English of difficulties. Blockages, features of the terrain, burdens, counterforces, and the lack of an energy source. Blockages. He got over his divorce. He's trying to get around the regulation. He went through the trial. Uh, we ran into a brick wall. We've got him boxed in a corner. Now, notice at this point, we have another form of causation coming in. If you're running into a brick wall, then it is exerting force on you. It is causing you difficulty. It is impeding your motion. It is causation as force. It is another form of causation. Features of the terrain. He's between a rock and a hard place. It's been uphill all the way. We've been bogged down. Burdens. He's carrying quite a load. We, we, he's weighed down by assignments, trying to shoulder all the responsibility. Get off my back. Counterforces. So notice with burdens, if you're carrying something, it keeps you from getting somewhere. So it's seen as a difficulty, something that keeps you from realizing your purposes. Counterforces. Quit pushing me around. She's leading him around by the nose. He's holding her back. Lack of an energy source. I'm out of gas. We're running out of steam. Now, projects, that is, purposeful activities, fixed planned purposeful activities, are seen as routes that you try to follow, routes you are on. And so you get um, things like, we've gotten barely halfway on the building of this bridge. I took him off of the project. So you're on the project, you're off the project. He went off onto another project. I've gotten sidetracked from writing my book. Uh, making progress is seen as forward movement. We're moving ahead. Let's forge ahead. We made a lot, a lot of forward movement. Amount of progress is the distance moved. We've come a long way, covered a lot of ground, made it this far. Undoing progress is backward movement. We're sliding backwards. Uh, backsliding, need to backtrack. Starting a project is starting out on a, path, on a path. We've taken the first step. Achieving a project is reaching the end of a path. We've reached the end. We see the light at the end of the tunnel, have a short way to go. The end is in sight. Okay. Lack of purpose is lack of direction. He's just floating around, drifting aimlessly. Needs direction. Uh, means or paths. Do it this way. Uh, she did it the other way. Do it any way you can. Now, external events are very interesting with respect to this form of causation as forced movement. That is, suppose that you have a planned activity. You have some purpose, where purpose is a destination you're trying to reach, and you're moving toward it. An external event can exert a force on you that can either help you achieve it or can deter you, move you off your course. So we have three kinds of special uh, cases for external events as large moving objects in English. The first is the word things. How are things going? They're going with me. That is, they're helping me move toward my destinations. They're going against me. They're impeding me from moving. These are causal statements. Okay? Uh, things took a turn for the worst. Worse, things are going my way, the same direction toward the same purpose I am. Fluids. You've got to go with the flow. It doesn't mean 
Now, everybody, I don't have to ask you what it means to go with the flow around here, but what does it mean? It means there uh, are external events moving in a certain direction and that you can't overcome them. Instead of just trying to go against them and go to some purposes that go in, in a different direction, what you should do is just go to whatever, wherever they take you. Um, I'm trying to keep my head above water. You speak of the tide of events, the winds of change, the flow of history, getting your bearings, being up a creek without a paddle, and we're all in the same boat. That is, all the external events are going to move us in the same direction. Horses, the third case, uh, interesting in the, in, the, uh, in the conceptual system. That is, you have things like try to keep a tight rein on the situation. Try to keep a grip on the situation. Don't let things get out of hand. Wild horses couldn't make me go. Someone tries to, people try to get you to do things that you don't want to do. You say, hold your horses. And when things start to get out of hand, you say, whoa. <laughs> now, these are interesting. The special cases are special cases of external events are large moving objects. And this is a sub-metaphor, a little sub-part of the event structure metaphor. So you see, one of these metaphors has a lot of structure. It has a lot of sub-mappings. And each sub-mapping can have a number of special cases. It's the special case structure that gives you a tremendous amount of richness, richness in a metaphor system. And each of the special cases can have different inference patterns that get mapped from the domain of space to the domain of causation and events. Okay, let me show you where we are on this. We've just gone through the central case uh, on the location branch. Let's go through the two variations next so that we can see where causation enters into those. Okay. In this case, activities, instead of just being a, a route that you're on, uh, activities are moving objects. So. My research has slowed to a crawl. How is your book coming along? This lecture is moving right along. The governor is holding up implementation of the motor voter law. The Senate Democrats blocked the balanced budget amendment. Here is something that they try to get through Congress. Uh, the Democrats are trying to derail the Republican legislative agenda. Uh, the owners closed the door on an early settlement of the baseball strike. Right? In each case, you have some purposeful activity. That is, trying to get an early settlement of the baseball strike, the Republican legislative agenda, and so on. And that is understood as a moving object. And when it reaches the, reaches the end of its path, then it's completed. The activity is done. If it's derailed, then it can't get to the end of its path. Okay? What are forces here? Causes are understood as forces that can keep an activity from getting to an end of a path or push it along a little bit. You know, we're trying to push this legislative agenda along. Okay? Variation number two. Actions can be seen as locations. Closeness to an action can be seen as closeness to a location, and preventing an action is stopping someone from reaching that location. So, uh, I'm going to leave. I'm leading. That's going to. I'm leaning toward leaving. They pushed him into running for president. They prodded him to run. I was drawn into the bank robbery. They stopped me from leaving. Notice what's going on in each case. In something like they prodded me to run, they're exerting a physical force on me 
to go to this place, to this activity. Okay? Uh, I've taken steps toward canceling my policy. He's close to resigning. He backed away from resigning. I'm about to leave. He came near, for, near to resigning. He nearly resigned. He's inching toward invading another country. So actions are seen as locations here. Closeness you get with words like come near to and nearly and inching towards. Preventing is things like stopping or blocking and so on. So causation in this case is a force that can affect movement. It's movement in space. But notice that it's a different kind of case than the, the first kind. Here you have actions or locations versus activities or moving objects versus acti actions are uh, self-propelled motion. That is, each different kind of metaphor for actions and events gives you a different notion of causation when you add causes or forces to that notion. Now, one of the most interesting things about this system is what is called duality. If you take the um, states um, are locations notion, like I'm in trouble, there's what is called a dual of that, and I'll tell you what a dual is in a minute. You have things like I have a headache, now, uh, or I have trouble. Compare I'm in trouble, states or locations. I have trouble, that property, trouble, is a possession of mine. Okay? Here I have a headache. In these cases, uh, what you have is things like, you can say, I got a headache, where change is acquisition. Uh, the noise gave me an a, uh, a headache, where uh, causation is giving or taking away. The aspirin took away my headache. Okay? Now, what exactly is going on here? Well, you have the following situation. This is what is called the object branch of the event structure metaphor. And in it, attributes are possessions. I have a headache. I have trouble. Uh, changes are movements of possessions, acquisitions or losses. Uh, so things like, um, I got a headache, my headache went away. Causes are forces again, but causation now is the transfer of possessions, giving or taking. So for example, the noise gave me a headache, the aspirin took it away. Now, Notice and purposes are desired objects. They're things you're trying to get. Now, notice what these are the duals of. And let's compare them to the first case of the event structure metaphor. Compare attributes or possessions, I have trouble, with states or locations, I'm in trouble. Okay. Now, here, for changes, changes are movements, but movements of different kinds. Compare something like, he fell in love, where love is a location, and he falling is moving into that location. So the thing that changes falls into, moves into the location, the state, the effect. However, if you say, I get, uh, you know, he got trouble, or he got a headache, there the headache is a property that moves to the thing that changes. So in one case, you have something that changes moving to a state, in the other case, you have the state or attribute moving to the thing that changes. Okay? These are minimally different. They're like a figure ground difference. Here, the thing that changes is the figure. The state is the ground. You move to it. In the other case, the attribute 
is the figure. The thing that changes is, in the, is the ground, and it moves to the things that changes or from. So uh, I got a headache. My headache went away. Okay. And the dual of purposes are desired uh, 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 are desired locations. That is, destinations is purposes are desired objects. So let's take a look at that last case. Achieving a purpose is acquiring a desired object. So they just handed him the job. It's within my grasp. It eluded me. Go for it. It escaped me. It slipped through my hands. He's pursuing a goal. Uh, he has interesting pursuits. This is why we talk about purposes as pursuits. You're trying to get a desired object. Latch on to a good job. Seize the opportunity. Okay. Now, this is part of a bigger system. And it's an interesting system. A special case of a desired object is something to eat. So achieving an ob a, a, a purpose can be seen as getting something to eat. Hence, he savored the victory. Why do you say all the good jobs have been gobbled up? He's hungry for success. The opportunity has me drooling. It's a mouth-watering opportunity. Now, how do you get something to eat? Well, the traditional methods are hunting, fishing, and agriculture. <laughs> so trying to achieve a purpose is seen as hunting. I'm hunting for a job. I bagged a promotion. Uh, the typical way to hunt is to use projectiles like bullets and arrows. I'm shooting for a promotion. I'm aiming for a career in the movies. I'm afraid I missed my chance. Or trying to achieve, achieve a purpose can be fishing, another special case. He's fishing for compliments. I landed a promotion. Everything about why you land a promotion? She netted a good job. I've got a line out on a good used car. It's time to fish or cut bait. So, And finally, we have agriculture. It's time I reaped some rewards. That job is a plum. Those are the fruits of his labor. The contract is ripe for the picking. So what you find here is that this is part of uh, a general metaphor of achieving a purpose is getting a desired object. Then you have a special case of that, getting something to eat. Then you have special cases of that, hunting, fishing, and agriculture. And you get a very large, complicated, interesting metaphor system. And wherever force is used in those cases, you understand it as causation. Okay. Now, there's also a, an important minor system, my system of minor variations, and I'll go through them very quickly on the event structure metaphor. And these also, as we'll see, interact with uh, causes or for forces. So changing is turning. Remaining in a state is going in the same direction. Changing is turning. He went on talking versus the milk turned sour. Causation is forced motion. Why do you have the word turn? So you can say he turned the lead into gold. So the verb turn in this minor sense, which is forced turning, can be seen as a verb of causation. States are shapes. An ideal state is a canonical shape. An abnormal state is an abnormal shape. So you say, what shape is the car in? He's in rare form tonight. He's in shape. He's got a twisted mind. He wants to reshape the government. And what's going on there? You're, uh, you're exerting force on something to change its shape. That, that's a causal predicate, to change its state. So reshape is a causal predicate. She's a reformer to change its form. 
he, he, I will conform to prevailing standards, and so on. Some of these are not live cases. Some of these are uh, historical cases where something like transform uh, means, uh, you know, uh, had uh, originally meant to change its form to something else. Now, um, change can also be seen as replacement, where a thoroughly changed entity is seen as a different entity in the same place. So you say, I'm a different man. It means I have changed radically. After the experiment, the water was gone and hydrogen and oxygen were in its place, right? It's a replacement. Under hypnosis, the sweet old lady was replaced by a scheming criminal, okay? Similarly, a change of entities is the same entity changed. Uh, so his house gets bigger every time he moves. Each time he remarries, his wife gets younger. Um, Causing is making. Effects are objects made. I made him leave. He made lead into gold, and so on. So those are the minor systems, and here we find again a verb of, uh, of force. Causation is force, but it's a force change of shape with making. Now, there are other, aside from causation, uh, causes or forces, there are a number of other minor metaphors of uh, causation. One of them is, uh, has been noticed by Mark Turner, uh, causation is progeneration, effects are offspring. So, necessity is the mother of invention, Teller was the father of the H-bomb, the seeds of World War II were sown at Versailles. Causation is also seen as emergence. So, uh, causes are containers, effects are emergent contents, and he shot the mayor out of desperation. The chaos in Eastern Europe emerged from the end of the Cold War, and so on. Now, at this point, there's uh, a very important thing to be thinking about. Each of these metaphors has a different logic to it. That is, uh, giving birth has one logic. Emerging, coming out of a container, has another logic. And all the various other ones have their own logics, whether it's forced motion to a new place, or getting an object, or stopping an, uh, some object from moving, and so on. And uh, that's very important because it, it asks the question, what is causation as a whole? Is there such a thing as a causation with a single logic? The answer is no, and that's kind of interesting, although there are certain things that these cases share. Now. So to go back over this, let's look at the way causation functions in the event structure metaphors. There are certain shared mappings in the event structure cases. Causes are forces, changes are motions. In the location branch we see here, states are locations. Causation is the forced movement of the affected party to the effect. In the first variation, activities are moving objects. Causation is the forced movement uh, or stoppage of an activity. Act actions are locations. Causation is the forced movement or stoppage of movement relative to a location. That is, causation is different in each cases, but causes are forces. They're the same in each cases, each case. Now, in the object branch, we have properties or possessions. Causation is the transfer of an effect to or from an affected party, as in, the noise gave me a headache, the aspirin took it away. 
So causation has a different logic, but again, it, a cause is a force. It's something that can affect a transfer. Now, in addition to, to metaphors for causation, there are uh, metonymies that uh, use the metaphor of uh, a force metaphor. And basically, there are three, the causal location, path, and link metonymies. Uh, here are the cases. He died from pneumonia. Why from? That is, the location can stand for a force. And what's going on there? Here you see nature as being a force that can move you. If you have pneumonia, if you're in this position, then there are natural forces that can move you to death unless there is some intervention, like antibiotics. Um, the causal path metonymy. Here, the path can stand metonymically for a, for a force. Now, if you're on a path, the path leads to some place. So, you get things like smoking marijuana leads to drug addiction. The idea is that if you're on this path and there's a natural force moving you along the path, you will go to later stages of the path. The causal link metonymy. Here, links can stand for forces and hence for causes. So we have things like cancer has been linked to smoking. Link has to do with a causal relation. Um, the reduction of the defense budget is tied to the peaceful solution of international problems. The deal hinges on how much they are willing to compromise. So you have causal links. What's going on with causal links? Suppose I have two objects here that are linked. I uh, exert a force like that. If I exert a force on one, the other moves. Okay? So the link is metonymic for the force, for the force that, move, that, that will move the first, hence moving the second. Okay? So those are the metonymies. And now, if you, when we, we were to go back over that initial list, we'd have covered all the cases, except one. Uh, which, I, which I didn't put on the handout, but just remembered. Uh, you also have causation as accompaniment. So uh, uh, pressure goes up with temperature. Okay? A, an increase in pressure accompanies an increase in temperature. That's, that's another one. Okay, now, once you see this, and you see all the variations on causes or forces, here are the minor cases. You have causes or forces plus changing is turning, and yet he changed turn lead into gold. Causes or forces with states or shapes. So reshape, causes or forces, and changes replacement. Replace, causes causation is making, I made lead into gold. If you look at causes or forces and these kinds of forced motion or movement, there are certain basic properties of force movement that are mapped by this metaphor onto basic properties of causation that have been noticed for generations or, or hundreds of years. Uh, the application of a force has to precede the change, so the, the causes precede changes. The application of force is contiguous to the change. If you're going to apply a force to it, it's contiguous. So causes are contiguous to changes. Change wouldn't have happened without the application of force, so um, change wouldn't have happened without the, upset should say motion shouldn't have happened without the application of force. Change wouldn't have happened without the cause. Okay? So these basic properties of causation uh, are just metaphorical mappings of these properties of force movements. And by the way, if you're a physicist and you're thinking of action uh, force at a distance, uh, 
force at a distance is, of course, understood as contiguous force. You know, the um, Earth exerts a pull on the moon. So it's as if it were pulling it, attached. And if you look at the language and the reasoning of force at a distance, what you're doing is using your understanding of force directly applied to understand force at a distance. Now, let's start, let's go back to the original case that we discussed at the beginning here. Uh, these cases of causal paths and trees, the domino effect, and so on. If you look at the central case of causes or forces, what kind of changes are this, is this central case good for describing? That is, forced motion. It's good for describing change that is gradual, uh, changes that occur simultaneously with the action of the cause. Since most causes are understood as controllable, it's good for describing controllable changes. And it's good for uh, describing changes that are not affected by other changes. Now, there are lots of other special cases of motions in the world, motions under force in the world, that aren't essential cases. And those are good for describing very different kinds of changes. So, uh, for example, changes that depend on other changes that once started perpetuate themselves and are no longer controllable, that are sudden, that lag after the action of the cause. Well, those are the kinds of cases that show up in the social science models we started with. So let's take these. Causal paths or trees. By the way, a tree is, of course, a visual metaphor where you map a tree onto a, a complex bunch of paths that diverge in various, at various points. Um, here, those are for cases where change depends on prior changes. An example is Paul David's description of the, the, the QWERTY keyboard that we all use, the Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And that was originally used um, to slow down typists because the original typewriters were so clunky that if people typed too fast, they would make mistakes. Uh, since then, that has changed, uh, but the keyboard hasn't. That is, once the keyboard was adopted and people learned to type, uh, that, uh, you know, further change depended on prior change, and you just couldn't change that keyboard. You, once you started out on the QWERTY path, there was no other way to go. Uh, uh, so, similarly, there are theories of paths to um, democracy. Uh, the assumption is that if a country takes certain steps, then surely, even though it's now a dictatorship, in the future it's going to become a democracy. Or if it's now an authoritarian regime, it's going to become a demo democratic regime because it's on the right path. The domino effect is an interesting case. Now, notice what, how causes or forces are being used here. It's like, um, you know, smoking marijuana leads to drug addiction. Right? It's, if you're on the path, then there are natural forces that will move you to later parts in that path. <coughs> the domino effect. Well, what do you know about dominoes? You know that they're set up one next to another, and if one falls, it, it hits the other, and each of them is unstable, and it only takes a little force to knock it over. So built into the image of dominoes is a whole set of assumptions that is a very, very special case about how force works. Okay? Then you have a further metaphor that becoming, when a country becoming communist, it becomes communist, it falls. So good is up, bad is down, communism is down, the government falls to the communist government. And then you have the domino theory. 
And, you know, as soon as you impose the domino uh, metaphor on some situation, why then you've got to make sure that at some point the domino effect stops and that you prop up some government, right, to, to, to keep it from going. Causes are forces here, but with this very, very special non-central case. Thresholds. Think about a threshold of your door. Okay, uh, luck, suppose you have a flood. Suppose your threshold is a foot high. The water rises, it rises to six inches, eight inches, nine inches, nothing happens. It rises to 13 inches and your house floods. Okay, that is, here you have a buildup of force for a while with no effect, but at one point when the change starts, it becomes uncontrollable. That's a very, very special model of causes or forces extremely special model. And somebody, a social scientist who observes certain effects in the world uh, of changes of this sort will want to use a certain metaphor of causation to describe it. Okay? And this would be an appropriate metaphor from causes or forces, but a very special case of that. Similarly with the plate tectonic theory in international relations. Uh, in plate tectonics, you have a very, um, forces building up between plates over a very long period of time. Uh, the force has started for you know, many, many years before, and at some point, the plate slips. And you don't know when, but it takes a long time. Okay? You all are familiar with this. Now, um, in international relations, the claim is uh, you have lots of pressure. The U.S. put lots of quote-unquote pressure on the Soviet Union for many years. Uh, it was, you know, eventually bound to move, but you didn't know when, and so on. So, therefore, a, it was not surprising that the Soviet Union changed many years after we first put pressure on it, and uh, but it's also not surprising that we couldn't predict just when it was going to change. So, this uh, theory of international relations was trying to account for things of this sort. That is, you have people with certain data and they want a causal model to make sense of that data and what they go to is to some special case of causes or forces to fit the kinds of data they have. As these are experts who've been looking at something for a long time. These theories may or may not make sense but what they're trying to, but each theory has an inferential structure and what causes or forces does, together with the events, all the various kinds of event structure metaphor, plus our world knowledge, is give us a large supply of causal models. And then what you do, if you're a social scientist, is you look at the kind of data you have, you become familiar with it, and you ask, is there a model from this selection that fits? Now, usually this is an art, not a science. But what we can do now is virtually predict the range of possible causal models. Okay. Um, there are certain morals here. The first moral. The wide variety of causal models results from the application of causes or forces. Now, it can also result from some of the other causation metaphors, uh, such as causation is progeneration and so on. But this is the one where most of them come from. And uh, especially different special cases of forces with different conceptualizations of events. You put together the different metaphors for event structure with causes or forces and all the special cases of forces you can think of, and what you get are the class of causal models. 
So our ordinary system of metaphors for event structure characterizes the systematic relationship among kinds of causal models. That's cool. The second moral. It is our conceptual system that makes the various causal models with their different inferential properties into a unified phenomenon, causation. Causation as a unified phenomenon does not exist objectively in the external mind-free world. That's, that's the wilder moral. Think about it for a minute. There are lots of regularities in the world, regularities of all sorts. When we conceptualize a non-physical regularity, I'm not talking just about physics here, I'm just say, say a regularity in social structure, for example, or in politics or international relations, a non-physical regularity as causation, what we're doing is using our metaphorical conceptual system. We're picking one of the various types of causes or forces models with one version of event structure with a certain special case and a certain inferential pattern. We're not just describing the world as it is on its own terms when we talk about causation. The choice of those models and the understanding of causation in terms of physical force is something that has to do with human concepts. That is, you may be describing a true regularity about the world with one model of causation, let's say causal paths. You may be describing a different true regularity about the world with a different model, uh, let's say uh, 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 thresholds. You might be describing still another regularity with a still different model and so on. But what makes them all causation is not anything that's just out there in the world. What makes them causation is the fact that they use the metaphor of causes or forces plus the other metaphors for understanding what an event is. Now that's pretty wild because most philosophers uh, have thought, or many philosophers, not most, traditionally, uh, classical philosophy has taught us, and certainly American, uh, Anglo-American philosophy does, that causation is out there in the world as a unified phenomenon. This says, look, there can be all kinds of forms of causation, each of them describing some regularity about the world, but what makes them one thing causation is your mind, is the fact that you understand causes as forces and that you intersect that with various understandings of events. Now, in saying this, I'm not claiming that there's anything inherently wrong with using metaphorical models. You think metaphorically. You have to. Any scientific theory is going to use metaphorical causal models. But you have to be aware of the details. You have to know exactly which metaphorical model of causation you're using and what its logic is. And since metaphors can hide various aspects of reality, you have to use special care to look for possibilities that the metaphor might hide. Namely, you need to be aware of all this stuff if you're going to be doing uh, modeling in the social sciences. So, to conclude, causation, as applied in non-physical senses, is a metaphorical concept growing out of the bodily use of force in the world every day of our lives. We understand forces because we function in the world with our bodies and people in the world function on us. Uh, and the world functions on us. With, you know, if you go out tonight, there'll be a strong wind and you'll understand that. 
Causation is not a unitary concept. Instead, there are different forms of causation with different logics. The range of causal models that are used in the social sciences can be characterized by this conventional metaphor system of causation. Thank you. Questions? Yes? How much difference do you find in different languages and different cultures in the frequency with different types of metaphors are used? Okay, first, the, the question was this, how much differences, there, what differences are there across languages in the concepts of causation and events? I don't know yet. Uh, the study of that has barely begun. In the few cases that we've looked at, the general conceptual metaphors seem to be the same, but the individual expressions differ. That is, you know, we have uh, expressions like derail. If you have a culture without trains, you're not going to get derail. Right? You have to have certain uh, cultural images and cultural knowledge for special cases of motion and force and so on. But the idea that causes or forces has shown up in every language we've looked at so far. Now, that doesn't mean that the next language won't be different. Okay. And moreover, not all these details have been checked. I mean, this is, uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done, and linguists have not yet done most of that work. Thank you. Yes? That seems like using metaphor as a way to organize this kind of way of looking at language and experience. Uh, it's very basic. And I'm just curious, what kind of effect does it have for you to differentiate the language in this way? And I'm curious about the effect. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, when you become aware of your metaphor system, you notice you're doing strange things. <laughs> um, I, I'm now writing another book, uh, a book on um, metaphors for morality and how conservatives' metaphors are different from liberals and uh, <laughs> how that works. I, I would have done that today, but I, uh, I started the book after I gave the title. <laughs> so. But that's another, it's, an, it's a very interesting question. What happens is I start noticing my own metaphors for morality, my own metaphors for marriage. I start noticing lots of those, those things, and they shake me up. And sometimes you can change them, and sometimes you can't. It's very hard. Bill. Those animals had notions of causation, and their notions cannot be language-based. First of all, I'm not saying this is language-based. I'm saying this is conceptually based. It's based on the idea of physical force in the body and on the projection of physical force onto an abstract domain of events. It doesn't require any way to express it in language. It just has to do with conception. The language is secondary. The language, since I'm a linguist, is what supplies the evidence for figuring it out. So I would, there would be nothing to go against the idea that, that animals could have an abstract sense of causation. Now, that they have physical forces, and that they use physical force and can reason about, quote unquote, reason about or think about or function with physical force is undoubted in some way. That they have abstract causation, which is not about the physical domain, but is about some abstract domain, is certainly not obvious. <coughs> okay? Yes? 
Sure, but you could understand that reasoning as just the reasoning of physical force that they have. You know, the interesting case where you're distinguishing cause from causation from just force is the case where you have an abstract case. So if I'm trying to make a case for there being um, a metaphorical understanding, it's a better case if you uh, are using non-physical examples. But you're, you're basically right, because a lot of physical theories are based on more abstract notions of causation, which might not be merely physical, uh, like notions of gravity and, and so on. If you look at, uh, at Newtonian mechanics, it's not just, or Einsteinian mechanics or quantum mechanics, they're not just based on simple notions of physical forces. They're based on other notions of causality. Eve. There's a reason why, you, you know, if you think about uh, how you understand disease, it's very nice to understand diseases as this thing, this germ, bacterium, et cetera, that comes in and gets you and exerts some sort of force in you and binds with your DNA and, and so on. It's harder to have a different notion, a holistic notion of disease. Paul. Uh, George, you say that we can't avoid uh, thinking metaphorically. And you also say that metaphors can hide aspects of reality. And if you know, how do you, how then, if you, could, if you say that metaphors can hide aspects of reality, we must have some access to reality, which is not by a metaphor, in order to know that the metaphors are hiding it. Mm -hmm. But if that's true, then why don't we just use that way to get at reality and a very good question, and let me try to give you an answer. Suppose uh, you're talking about international relations. Uh, it's very hard to just get at the realities of international relations by themselves without metaphor. For example, we have a metaphor that states are persons or that states are objects that can be moved by forces or that states are people with interests and, and so on. Uh, it's very hard to understand international relations just on its own terms. And if you go read the literature of international relations, a huge amount of the discussion is metaphorical. Uh, it's hard to, to, to know that. For, or let's take another one. Suppose you're a sociologist and you're talking about social forces. You don't just go out and, you know, with a meter and, you know, get a social force and measure it. You have to, to understand what social forces are. Now, you can hide certain things. What are the, the non-metaphorical things that can be hidden? Somebody can be hungry. That's not metaphorical. Somebody can die. Somebody can be cold, be homeless. Those are not metaphors. Now, those are the things that you can directly observe. Uh, in international relations, uh, you know, one army can cross the border of another army or bomb another country. That's not metaphorical. But uh, there are, uh, if you want to talk, if you look at the, at the theories, the causal models which are used as theories in international relations or sociology, those are metaphorical because those are looking at higher level generalizations. 
and they're supposed to cover a myriad of de detailed things that are not metaphorical. But you can't just measure those higher level generalizations like social forces. Uh, in back here, yes. Yeah, first here and then there. Uh, it seems like what you were saying, um, you're, you're relating, uh, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but you're relating the, the uh, causality to force. What if you did the same analysis with force? Uh, I mean, couldn't you dick any, any, uh, it, it seems like if you trace it, you a movable target here, you can keep tracing it around. If, if, you, if, you, if you used force as the thing that you, you looked at how that was used and how, what that meant through, through a, a similar metaphoric system, which you have to understand that? Absolutely right. Let me give you an example. That's completely correct. Um, force itself is often conceptualized metaphorically. It's conceptualized in, as an object that moves from one place to another. I direct force at this object, right? I, you know, uh, you know, put force on this object, I, you know, and so on. That is, it's seen as an object that moves. And so metaphors are often transitive. That is, you, you have one metaphor, which is based on uh, object motion, and then another one based on that, and so on. So you're, you're quite right. In the back of the room. I'm interested in Yes, uh, there's a wonderful book on that by someone in this room named uh, Professor Sweetser in Linguistics called From Etymology to Pragmatics, uh, Cambridge University Press, 1990, <laughs> going over lots of cases where uh, conceptual metaphor has been there historically and where uh, the change of wor words depends upon the prior existing of metaphor in the culture so, and in the language. But yes, it, that has begun to be studied, and it suggests that metaphors are a bit earlier. Eve, did you want to yes, say something? Does not argue that we gradually have gotten more metaphorical or more implicit or any of those kinds of things. Like as far as we can tell, older languages made use of metaphor um, as liberally as a modern language. Okay, did you all hear that? Probably not. Uh, what Eve said was this: It does not appear that languages get more metaphorical with time. If you look at the at ancient language, languages, they look just as metaphorical as modern languages. It looks like metaphor has been there all along. Yes? He asked, have there been studies of uh, earlier cultural figures like Dante or uh, perhaps earlier philosophers and so on? The answer is uh, yes. I'm writing a book right now with Mark Johnson, who's a philosopher. And part of that book will concern um, uh, metaphors used by ancient philosophers, uh, you know, the pre-Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, and so on. And the same metaphor system has been in place for thousands of years. That's an interesting question. Uh, so far, what he says is, this looks like a Newtonian model uh, of, of uh, metaphor. It is not a Newtonian model. Uh, 
in particular, by the way, there's a wonderful person to ask about this, Andy DeSessa over in the Ed School. Uh, he teaches uh, the, um, how, how people mess up when they learn physics. And what he has shown is that there are what he calls physical primitives that are what are used in the metaphor system, our intuitive notion of these things, and that Newtonian physics does not have this. Usually, we, ha we, we push something, we assume we have to keep pushing it to keep it going, but Newtonian physics doesn't work like that at all. What he shows is that there's a disparity between our own naive physics, which is what all of this is based on, and Newtonian physics, which is quite different. So the fact, what happens is that the older metaphor systems are based on our own common everyday notion of force, which is not Newtonian force, and certainly not more recent force. In the back over there. Yeah. Uh -huh. Very good point. Uh, there, there's a paper, uh, an unpublished paper on, on this by uh, uh, Jane, uh, Jane Espenson. Uh, what she uh, argues is that motion, in, there's a further metaphor that I didn't give you in which motion can be understood in terms of possession, as in, you know, he got to Chicago things like this. There are a number of expressions like that. It's not a major metaphor in, in uh, you know, in, in the language, but it's there. Uh, yes? I'm wondering about your model where you talk about metaphors of linkage, like uh, smoking has been linked to cancer or someone has been tied to a murder. <coughs> seem to me impure examples which don't belong with the rest of your examples. The rest of them are unconscious metaphors that we often use, whereas it seems to me these are, are conscious metaphors that people resort to when they don't want to come right out and say that something caused something else. Well, uh, that's correct. Uh, different metaphors uh, have, uh, have um, uh, we have different access of to the con uh, to our aspects of our consciousness, some metaphors can be used very consciously, and things like linked to and tied to are used as what might be called hedges. When you don't want to say it really causes, and you don't have the evidence for that, and the question is, why does this express causation at all? That is, it has to be part of the metaphor system to express causation at all in the way that I suggest. But it is you're right; it is a self-conscious use, and so you have lots of differences. Yes. Whether it's Newtonian or not, it seems like the force metaphor presupposes a universe of location and motion. That's correct. And there's there's other ways of thinking about phenomena and change that are organic, developmental, ecological, holistic, various of these kinds of ways of looking mm -hmm. at things. I don't know if you'd consider them causation explanations, but it seemed like they're equivalent to this. So if I said that cognitive linguistics flourished in the late 19th Absolutely. and late 20th oh, yes, century. Certainly. That's not a force metaphor, but it's explaining a change in your discipline. Absolutely right. What you have is, an, is a set of organic metaphors for growth, uh, for, um, for example, for maturation, and so on. Now, those uh, organic metaphors uh, uh, usually have to do with things like change and natural development. They have to uh, do with natural change. Uh, they, to, to my knowledge, they don't appear to be causal in nature, but I might be wrong, and I should look at those, so, and I will. Thank you. Uh, yes, over here, back. Yeah. Why do you think theories rely on metaphors? And my second question is, can you give me an example of metaphors that hide aspects of reality? Uh, 
sure, the plate tectonic theory of international relations, uh, you know, hides a whole lot about the reality of what has been going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, let's take an example of the domino theory. The domino theory of international relations completely hid everything about the history of Vietnam, the uh, uh, relationship between Vietnam and China, and so on. It, it, you know, uh, it hit enormous amounts. Uh, uh, those are very, those are just simple examples, but most of the sorts of uh, very general theories that you find in um, uh, sort of pop political science and pop sociology and so on will often hide a whole lot about reality. Um, yes, uh, Bob. I'm sorry, did you follow up? Why do theories rely on metaphors? Because for most cases, you don't have a direct literal access to it. This is related to Paul's question before. Uh, if you have a theory in terms of social forces, you can't just go out with your force meter and, meter and measure social forces. You're hypothesizing the existence of a notion of a for social force which has causal effect. And that's not something that you can directly go out and measure. You can only look at the kinds of effects you have, namely, are people hungry, are they homeless, and, and so on. Um, that's why you have to have metaphors uh, in order to, to simplify, to, to be able to reason using ordinary everyday modes of reason to reason about very abstract things. Bob. Yeah, uh, George, a lot of the data that you present is a time slice of today. And uh, I'm wondering if there are people now who are beginning to study how kids are caused or forced or whatever to come to think this way. Uh, one of the uh, strange things about the child development literature is that there is almost no study of this in child development. This has been going on for the last 15 years in cognitive science, but the people who are in child development uh, have not begun to look at this yet. It'll take them a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, about that, Piaget did a lot of uh, Absolutely. work in that area. But uh, my question is, uh, philosophically, a challenging question uh, is whether ideas are coherent with each other overall. And if, in fact, uh, our metaphors of causation are just that, and in the real world there isn't any unified causation, mm -hmm. then can we... Uh, infer that there isn't coherence and the question I have is uh, if we always strive for coherence in ideas is that a futile objective? Okay. There's a difference between coherence and consistency. Uh, you have lots of inconsistent metaphors. We can turn this off. Yeah, that's better. Sorry. <laughs> turn this off. There's lots of inconsistent metaphors. In fact, we, we usually, for a given domain, like event structure, have lots of different metaphors for that domain. And they may be inconsistent with each other, and we may use different ones at different times for different purposes. Now, um, that... Uh, that you have... First, so it's not the case that we have a consistent conceptual system. But these metaphors are often linked to one another in systematic ways, and they often form what are called radial categories. Uh, let me give you an example. Take the concept of harm. Now, the central notion of harm is physical harm, right? Someone comes, hits me over the head with a baseball bat, that's physical harm, okay? Now, there's also mental harm, 
financial harm, social harm, and so, so, and so on. That is, we have non-physical notions of harm that we metaphorically extend from these things, and the law recognizes these as different. You know, uh, causing financial harm is not battery. <laughs> there are different categories in the law, though it may be harm. So, uh, but we all understand that they're all part of the category of harm. So there are central members of a category, like physical harm, and metaphorical members that may be, uh, which we also understand as harm, which are non-central. That gives us a form of coherence without them being the same thing or, or, of, or cases where the financial harm is an instance of physical harm or anything like that. So is there an underlying coherence to causation that we have not identified? Causation, again, seems to be a radial category. The, the coherence is this. Most of the cases of causation use causes or forces, and they extend that to various types of metaphors for events. That gives you one class of these, and then there are subcases of that and some cases of that. Then there are other cases of uh, giving birth, which is linked to force. I mean, you have to force out a child and it comes out of you, or something uh, coming out of something else, which is linked to birth. So you might have um, partial similarities, which may link one kind of causation to another, giving you a radial category. But that is, what we have is a coherence among the types of causation, but they're not all instances of one general thing. Yes? What is the practical use of, of this? Of this stuff? Well, uh, suppose you're, the bottom line is, the, uh, it might be, suppose you're um, uh, choosing a theory of international uh, relations which will tell you whether or not you're going to get into a, uh, a war. It might be useful to know something about uh, what's being hidden by the metaphors of your theory. Uh, you know, if someone had looked at the domino effect, uh, you know, and asked what kinds of things could possibly be hidden by that, we might not have been in a certain war. What'd you say? Other side, that's an interesting question. I, I uh, had a paper on the Gulf War some years ago where uh, I showed that some of the metaphors used by Saddam Hussein were different than the metaphors used here. Uh, that doesn't show, say that they're all different. Hmm? I think there's a whole different world between Christianity and Muslim. Right. That's exactly correct. That's a very important thing to know about. You need to know, uh, if you're involved in international relations, what the countries you're studying, uh, what metaphors they're operating with. Extremely important, important kind of thing. Yes? Do you see any signs that we're getting over this use of metaphors? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a disease. <laughs> Unified field theory, right? So it's possible we could now start substituting on the computer, we could put an asterisk down at the bottom, we would give all the stuff we're talking about instead of using a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Look, a couple of things to say about this. Uh, 
it's virtually impossible to engage in any kind of abstract or scientific thought without metaphor or any everyday thought. I mean, sure, we can talk about uh, picking up a glass and the glass being on the table. That's not metaphorical. But as soon as we start uh, talking about modes of morality, uh, whether we have moral authority, uh, do you have enough backbone to do this, are you sufficiently disciplined in your budgetary practices, you're in the, in the realm of metaphor. You can't just... ...move from the physical field to uh, social theory uh, using the physical field that has stopped using metaphors. You can't stop using them because they're what allow you to reason abstractly. I mean, and you do it automatically, unconsciously, and if you, you know, there just would be no way to do it. You couldn't reason about time, about events, you couldn't re do most of the reasoning you do. You couldn't reason about uh, uh, relationships, marriage, most of, the, most of our understanding of marriage is metaphorical. You know, you understand it as a partnership or a way to go through life together or as a parent-child relationship and so on. And there's no way not to do it. That is part of what we are. We're metaphorical beings. We have physical physical concepts, physically based, bodily based concepts, and these are projected by metaphorically onto other things. And there's just no way around it. It's just who we are. One last question. Uh, yes. Would you say that possible that language gives us the illusion of having intentions? We are that we can create causation. We can give ourselves the illusion of being causes. By, uh, by certain language games, including the word intentionality. And it's, uh, a neurochemist would say that it's all neurochemistry, really. But you can give yourself an illusion that there's the self is causing something. Or would you then be able to come back and say that, no, Okay, very complicated, tough question, and, and uh, it's not a straightforward one to, to reply to. Uh, first of all, there's a set of metaphors for the self. So you need to know which concept, which metaphorical concept of the self you're talking about. There's, that would be another talk as long as this one, at least. <laughs> Secondly, uh, certainly I, uh, I uh, understand myself as having an intention to pick up this glass and take a drink of water and do it. Now there is a question of do we have an intention to um, uh, balance the budget, to preserve the environment, things of this sort, those are metaphorical intentions. You know, there it looks as if you could just do it like you pick up a cup of water and you can't. Those are cases where a lot of reality is hidden and where you have to, to go take a lot of steps between what is not metaphorical and, and the simple metaphor you use for understanding something like preserving the environment. Um, there's a very interesting question you raise about, uh, let's take the, uh, the use of metaphor in science. Suppose we want to talk about the brain. Well, uh, the way that neural systems are usually understood is through what's called a connectionist metaphor, a metaphor of electric, uh, sort of electric circuitry, of signals being passed from one neuron to another, and so on. That's a metaphor. Uh, what happens is that a complicated chemistry takes place. Now, um, then if you go and describe the chemistry, you're probably in another set of metaphors. That doesn't mean that you can't do science, and it doesn't mean that reality is always hidden. What it says is that the metaphors you have may fit reality, uh, quote unquote, 
fit and in some sense of fit, uh, better or worse, for certain purposes. So uh, at a certain level of description, it may be perfectly reasonable to think of a neural system in the terms of a connectionist metaphor. For other purposes, it is certainly not reasonable to think of it that way. Now, uh, you have to know what the differences are. You have to know when you're using metaphor and when it matters. That's hard. Thank you. Oh, an advertisement. There's, um, first of all, I hope you'll stay for refreshments. And there's a course on this, Linguistics 106, next year, next fall. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Mims from the GSI Teaching Resource oh, Center. I'm the director there. I just wanted to say to you, there was something that I, I can't even phrase this exactly properly, but it's been on my mind for a long, long time. When people say, especially with children, I love this child so much. I